This week on A Lively Experiment, a wide-ranging poll from the University of Rhode Island will have a breakdown and analysis of what it says. And it's the home stretch to next week's CD1 election. Will two statewide debates make any difference? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. We have a panel of political science professors from across the state. Adam Myers from Providence College, Emily Lynch from the University of Rhode Island, and Brown University's Wendy Schiller. Hello and welcome into Lively. I'm Jim Hummel and it's great to have you with us. How do Rhode Islanders really feel about where they live and the issues facing the state? URI polled 500 people in late August and early September in what the university is planning to be an annual exercise. This week, we're going to go inside the numbers. Uh, great to have all of you on. This is a, a first for me, political science professors. Emily, um, you were neck deep in this, uh, the initiative. So just tell me how this came about and what the thinking was, because this hasn't been done for a while. Right. So uh, leadership at Harrington School of Communication and Media, uh, the College of Arts and Sciences, um, the CIRAP, which is the Social Sciences Institute for Research and Education Policy, all came together and decided there was a need for um, a public opinion poll um, for Rhode Islanders. And um, I was happy to be a part of the team to um, of faculty that worked on um, creating this and constructing this questionnaire. Um, we had students that were able to be a part of this, and um, and we, we hope to have more students being involved in the future. We'll get into the numbers, but I, it occurred to me, what stood out to me is 61% follow what's going on in government or public affairs. Did you think that was high, low? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good indication that Rhode Islanders are interested in learning more and 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 have this, um, they they would like to um, pay attention to the what's going on in politics. Um, but then there's also this concern that uh, Rhode Islanders may not necessarily feel like they understand the political issues at hand, which we measured with a political efficacy uh, question. We're all plugged in. That's what we do for a living. But did that? What do you think about that number? That's sixty-one percent. It's about what I expected, um, but I also noticed elsewhere in the poll that uh, relatively few Rhode Islanders are politically active aside from voting. Few of them, you know, volunteer for political candidates or give money to candidates. I think it's about 10% all told of Rhode Islanders are what we would consider political activists, right? And, and that's reflective of where the country is. You know, most people are not all that engaged. They pay some attention to the news. They vote every two years. Otherwise, they're checked out. And I think that's where the bulk of the voters of the state are. Do you think that's changed over the years since you've come, the people <clears throat> paying attention? Or is well, I think party competition makes a big difference in generating interest and excitement among, you know, voters and then people who don't always vote regularly. And so we don't have uh, a strong two-party system in Rhode Island. I think on occasion, particularly for CD2 most recently, but in the old days, CD1 was competitive. And we had Republican governors um, not that long ago. So there was more party competition, and when there is more party competition, people are generally paying more attention more closely. All right, let's dive into some of this. There was, uh, we have a couple of graphics to put up. Corruption in Rhode Island government. 28% said all or most are corrupt. 30% a few, 2.4% said none. Emily, Emily, break that down for me. 
Right. Um, so I think that something that this this these this data doesn't show is that there is a, a difference based on partisanship. So if we take a like a closer look at the data, um, there is a difference where um, Democrats um, feel more like that um, there's less corruption versus Republicans in the state. And we can see that with um, questions related to corruption as well as like, for instance, um, trust questions. But, um, but I think that this deserves attention where we need to kind of unpack this further of seeing what areas are um, Rhode Islanders concerned about. Um, and there was a question about elections and if um, Rhode Islanders feel that elections are fair and that was generally positive. Um, so I think further, more questions about maybe different aspects of um, government agencies, um, uh, different areas that maybe we could have a better understanding where Rhode Islanders perceive corruption, where does it exist? Yeah, so I credit uh, both Nellie Gorbea, all the activities that she did uh, to ensure the safety and security of elections, and Greg Amore, who happens to be a teacher, so, um, and, you know, American history teacher. So he has been going every week, my understanding is, to high schools, community events, to explain voting, to explain what we're doing, to, how it all works. More information, more transparency coming from the Secretary of State's office, I think will help to develop a greater trust in elections. I actually, having been in Rhode Island now almost 30 years, um, which I'm very proud of. You're, you can't out of Rhode Island yet, but you've been here I a while. Um, I actually thought it was a good number that 30, um, 30%, uh, I'm sorry, 28% said all are most corrupt. That number, when I first got here, or even the first 15 years I was here, would have been much higher. So I actually thought it was a pretty good number for the history of corruption in Rhode Island. Well, you had a Speaker of the House go to jail, and we had, right before you got here, Governor... The mayor go to jail, uh, Governor Dupree for yeah. racketeering. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, well, I basically agree with Wendy. I would have actually expected the, that percentage to be a little higher, given the fact that we haven't had those kinds of blockbuster, blockbuster scandals over the past 10 years, but we've had kind of a drip, drip, drip of other smaller scandals. And Rhode Island's reputation kind of in the region is as a state where corruption is fairly high. Um, and so I was sort of reassured, actually. I, I'm not saying that that reputation is deserved. I'm saying it exists. But Rhode Island's residents apparently don't think it's that big of a problem. And I think that's generally speaking a good thing because where people think that their government is corrupt, they're going to have less trust in it. And lack of trust in government creates all sorts of other political problems. Having spent the majority of my life living here and, and working here my entire professional life, I think there's also this kind of Rhode Islanders kind of, I don't know, they, not that they delight into it. There's a little bit of inferiority complex, but there's also like, ah, he was taking a bribe. You know, that type of thing that the, the shock factor wore off many years ago, right? Yeah, but I also think uh, efforts to make government cleaner and more transparent. Um, certainly, you can go to Lincoln Chafee. You can go, and I think Carcieri also ran, and Lincoln Allman ran pretty clean administrations. Former so, federal prosecutor right, and a businessman, Right, I mean, they man, each right? ran clean administrations. So that governor's level, and I think McKee, he's had some blips here and there, but I think he's generally also uh, committed to running a clean administration. So having that kind of public commitment, um, especially at the governor's level, I think really changes the tone over time. And that's where I think it's important for us to continue to gather data like this to see how corruption um, or perceptions of corruption changes over time. And it would have been, you know, great to have that 10 years ago to kind of see if we are uh, amidst this, this shift. So you're as, the new baseline now. 10 exactly, years from yeah. now, you'll go back and back in 23, <laughs> I remember. Well, the other thing is, so let's look at trust in Rhode Island government. 
This is interesting. The flip side of the corruption, the Supreme Court, 58.5% of the people have trust in the Rhode Island Supreme Court, 495 in the governor, and 48% the General Assembly. Adam, what do you think about those numbers? <laughs> well, I think the reason trust in the Supreme Court is so high is because the public doesn't know what the heck the Supreme Court is doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Rhode Island Supreme Court, right? Yeah, right, the Rhode Island Supreme Court. They, I mean, I would assume trust in the U.S. Supreme Court would be quite a bit lower. Um, among Rhode Islanders. Listen, it's a well-known finding in political science, actually, that the more a, an institution is in the news, the less voters trust it. Um, and I don't think the Rhode Island Supreme Court has been in the news much of late, except for the Chirijo School Committee case. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I mean, these numbers aren't great, but they could be worse. <laughs> they could be a lot worse. I mean, if you yeah. compare them to Congress, exactly. Emily, I take, take it away, Emily. I, mean, I thought they were pretty good, the numbers, actually. Right. I, I think I thought the same thing. I looked at the Gallup polls to look at national data, and these are about 10, 10 percentage points higher than how um, Americans feel about the, um, the federal branches of government. So I think that's a good indication that, um, I mean, and, and that makes sense that we tend to see that in public opinion surveys that um, the, you're going to trust your the, the, the government that's closest to you more so than the federal government. Um, but we also had a question about that in asking um, trust in federal, state, and local government, and it was local government that came out on top of um, had the, the most trust. Yeah, and, well, because state governments also have to be more productive than the Congress in most cases. You have to get the budget done. You have to address things like the roads. You for have example. to balance the budget first <clears throat> to of all, right? Balance the budget, and I and I and I think that it's it, as the Supreme Court of the United States pushes more things back to the states, and as Congress tries to push things, having more faith in your state government. It's probably better for the democracy right now, given the trend to push from federal to state. What's interesting, though, so the governor, uh, governor, almost 50 percent trust in it. But when you talk about a specific person, you go to Dan McKee, who you would obviously what is the incumbent, uh, the incumbent, 27 percent approve of what he's doing, 27.5 disapprove, and then 33 percent neither approve or disapprove. Is there a disconnect to those two things or is it the fact that you're talking about a specific person here? Right. Um, I think that looking and giving the um, kind of giving that specific individual kind of a, a rating is going to have some fluctuations as to how you feel about um, the executive branch in, in general. Um, but as for the McKee approval rating, I think it was really interesting of how there was a large percentage that neither like gave him approval or disapproved of him. And I think that is interesting. And if we look at national polls, a lot of the times the, the way it's set up is you have only the response options of approve or disapprove. So right. this is really giving us more um, specific level understanding of like who are these people that that don't haven't have they not formed an opinion of him or are they just unsure at this point of how they feel? Who used to feel? do polls when I was in television <clears throat> and like 4% of the people didn't know who the governor was. Like, who are these people? Where do they live? This is pre-internet. What was also interesting to me though, Emily, you ask, and this is maybe why Joe Sakarchi didn't go, run for uh, Congress, 
you asked about, do you know who the House Speaker is? Exactly. And, and that um, is often done in political science polls to gauge political knowledge. That's one area of like knowing who the political actors are. <laughs> political knowledge here was, right? Right, exactly. And um, as Speaker, he has a lot of power. Shikarchi has a lot yeah. of power. And, and for Rhode Islanders not to recognize who those leaders are, um, I think that was a bit disconcerting. What about that? But not surprising. Uh, about Shikarchi or <laughs> no, about McKee? I mean, just the, well, McKee, yeah. Go so ahead and break it down. I, I would say the McKee approval rating results are really rather striking for a number of reasons. First of all, 33% neither approve or disapprove of him, and then there's another 13% who answered don't know. You, you add those two percentages up, it's close to 50%. He's of, in the news every day. Right, and I, close to half of Rhode Islanders have basically no opinion of him. Um, I think that's remarkable. And I think his uh, relatively low approval rating is also remarkable given that Generally speaking, it's a good time to be a governor in America right now. You know, the economy is, is doing pretty well. Inflation is down. Job growth is very high. Most state budgets are in good shape. The ARPA money hasn't run out yet. E exactly. And if you compare his approval rating to the approval ratings of all of the other New England governors, both Democrats and Republicans, his are far lower, right? Every other New England governor right now has an approval rating above 50%. Mm. Um, and so something is going on with Governor McKee um, that you know, is worth exploring further. Oh, it, I think there's just a big difference in how much coverage. You know, when he was running, he was everywhere all the time. Mm. And then as governor, he's been lower key, I think, on that level. And the CD1 Democratic primary soaked up so much attention for so long in the summer and the early, obviously, the first week in September. And he had to stay out of that. And I think if he had endorsed, it would have been different, but he had to stay out of it. So I think, you know, once the election was just coming up um, for CD1 happens, and then the, set, the General Assembly comes back into session in the spring, I wonder how those, those don't know, no, you know, no opinion, those numbers are going to shift depending on what the assembly and the governor do. Right. right, and there was a lot of the drip, drip, drip when he had the problem with his chief of staff, and there were a couple other scandals. I don't know if that word is, is right, right, that, that had yeah. him in the news. That's right, and so my guess is that part of the reason his approval rating is this low is that there's just a lot of voters who have kind of a negative perception of him or his administration because of that drip, drip, drip. They can't really describe what it's about. They wouldn't be able to tell you about the ILO scandal or the, the, trip, of, uh, the trip to Philadelphia of those guys in the mm. summer. But they know that, that things have, are, have not been quite right, and that's affecting their overall perception of him. Adam, you're refreshing my memory. I'd forgotten about all that Philadelphia <laughs> ILO. I'm sure the governor appreciates that. Emily, what, so any final thoughts on Governor McKay? No, I think I, I think we um, need to. Well, I think there we may see an opening, as we saw in the Boston Globe piece on um, Narona, that um, of interest in running against McKee. It's it's tough when the economy. Narona has done a lot. Um, it all depends, I think, you know, two years from now, on the economy in Rhode Island, a level of crime, because Narona will run on that, and so. You know, pushing McKee by saying I might be running probably benefits McKee, who will get a little more active, will get out there, be on his game. I think people underestimated him a little bit in the primary uh, in the last cycle. So, like I said, any competition, intra-party, within the party, or between the parties, gets 
we get better things out of our politicians. You, you wonder if he had had better competition. Helena Folks gave him a run for the money, but I mean, Ashley Kalis didn't even get the, like, put your name, get automatically 33%. I mean, she spent a lot of money to get the squeeze out that last couple. Let's, we'll go back to one more thing in the poll, but let's stay with Peter Narona. For those of you who didn't see it, the Boston Globe, for, for uh, Peter uh, Narona is term limited. So in uh, at the end of his t second term, can't run again. He said, this is the only job I want to do. I don't want to do. And then all of a sudden, he's been like Mr. Social Media. He's been on Twitter. He's been saying a lot of things outside the context of the attorney general's office. And so then Ed Fitzpatrick finally got him to say, yeah, I may be considering that. Any surprise to you at all? Or, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why I, did it take this I, long? I, right? think, I think we all knew this was in the offing. You know, you, you don't just suddenly, all of a sudden, you know, increase your social media exposure at that level and you know have people assume that like nothing is going on and listen he's going to be a very credible candidate uh but it looks like helena folks is going to run again as well uh and so this sets up the possibility that once again mckee could squeak by in a crowded democratic primary even if a majority of democratic voters don't want him to be the gubernatorial nominee in 2026. yeah i i um the folks candidacy is interesting to me. You know, do you think she'll run? I don't know because CVS, as we know, is shifting its business model. It's been having some issues. It's closing things here and there. It's it's struggling more than I think people thought it would. And so I think she's still heavily tied to CVS. And so if CVS has to make some cuts or changes in Rhode Island, um, That's I a think brick that hurts. Around her neck, I don't think you that think? I think I don't know. It's it's a brick, but I I think it, it hurts her a little bit. And, I, and so we'll have to wait and see. But to knock off an incumbent, as we know, is tough when things are good. It'll be a midterm cycle. Yep. That'll be interesting, too, because turnout tends to be lower in a midterm cycle. Gum on her shoe, maybe not a brick over her neck. But the other thing, too, is you got to figure in those out years, the ARPA money, you look at the, by the time the election comes, we're back into pretty heavy deficits. What about the chances of Nerona running? Um, well, we uh, talk about Narona in um, our book that we all <laughs> collaborated on, um, and I think what's interesting is, um, as Attorney General, he was pretty transformative in focusing not just on criminal issues, but on civil issues and advocacy, um, and kind of um, really has been pushing environmental issues and healthcare issues. Um, so I think that that he's um, willing, and, and he says it himself, to, to take a stand um, and be criticized for it, too. Um, so um, I, I definitely think there, you know, this, this isn't a surprise. It'll be interesting, interested. though, because he says he's worried about climate and health care, but he's also the one who put the kibosh on the merger. So it'll be interesting to see, not for this show. Although that, that merger now, Brown has reached uh, sort of a, a different kind of agreement with lifespan. So right. there is some, um, you know, in terms of Right, uh, but it's not lifespan and, and Care New England. It's no, Brown's. No, that's right. In. But I think there is some effort to still consolidate and unify the systems. He's um, also, in a combination with the state assembly, which, uh, the general assembly, which passed very strong laws on domestic violence and also guns in the last couple of years, he's been aggressive about enforcing those laws. And I think that's something that he's going to tout um, should he decide to run. One final thing on the poll, and then Emily, if you have anything beyond that, desired state spending increases. 70% for education, 69% for roads and bridges, 64.5% for healthcare, and then 64% for housing. So I, I think that's probably not a surprise, but we already spend a lot 
lot of money on in each of these areas. Is that a reflection of people's dissatisfaction with the results, or what do you think? What do you read into that? Um, well, I think that maybe maybe not necessarily dissatisfaction, but there's interest in improving education and our roads and bridges. These are common problems that we that we have here in Rhode Island. Uh, but I also want to mention and caution, you know, be cautious about looking at this because there are many ways in which you could gauge public opinion on like how they feel about the Rhode Islanders feel about spending. We could we could have asked them to rank these. We didn't do that. We could do hypotheticals of how much do you want to allocate out of a, a certain amount of funds. Um, so I think if you had additional questions, we'd really be able to see how Rhode Islanders feel about these issues. Uh, but this is based on um, a question that's asked in the American National Election Studies poll. Um, and this is very similar to what we see at the national level of how people feel about at least education and like federal highways, too. And yeah, um, just to kind of piggyback off of what Emily was saying, fiscal policy is all about trade-offs, right? If you increase spending in one area, you either have to cut it somewhere else or you have to raise taxes. And this poll, correct me if I'm wrong, it didn't really get at those trade-offs. No. So, you know, it's easy to say, I want more money spent on education, on roads and so forth. But when, when you present the trade-offs involved, it's quite likely that the, the views will be a little different. But I do think the fact that 70% feel that more money should be spent on education, higher than any of these other categories, does reflect concerns about our educational system in the state. Well, <clears throat> to me, what's interesting about these results, and Rhode Island is technically a blue state, is that this is why we think about deficits at the state level and deficits at the federal level. This is why the Republican Party, which is as conservative as ever been in my lifetime on spending, never cuts the budget. They never, Congress never figures out how to cut the budget. You know why? Most Americans want money spent on these things, and they're expensive. Yeah. And so this tells us a lot about not only state politics, but national politics, that it's just very difficult once government spends money in an area to cut back on those expenditures. Yeah, and it, I mean, Rhode Island's big problem over the years has been the property tax. So you've got places like Barrington and East Greenwich and South Kingstown who step up to the plate. And but Providence. The, and and Providence. Providence is pretty high property taxes, too, yeah. Right. Well, Providence, too. But, I mean, the, it, what I'm saying is, is that the formula in other states is so much more state aid than what's coming out. Anyhow, uh, it's interesting, the CD1 race. So, Emily, thank you for that. And you can see more of that online um, with URI. The, the CD1 race, the fact that we're almost at the end of the show, and this is kind of an afterthought, I think has been kind of... Uh, indicative of how this race is gone. Uh, debate, we're taping Friday morning. Debate Thursday night on Channel 10 and then Friday on uh, Channel 12. It's been a snoozer. But the Salve, the Salve poll was interesting. 46 Amo, 35 Leonard, and then 15% undecided. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I did notice that, uh, but I don't think the outcome of the race on Tuesday Those 15% really aren't going to be running toward Gary Jerry Leonard. I don't think so. I I haven't seen any reason to believe in the past two months since the primary that the dynamics of this race have really changed. And I did watch the debate last night. I don't think Leonard landed any knockout blows. Um, if well, I think the one thing that maybe was problematic for him, he says, I don't I don't approve of any ban on any I, weapons of any type. Yes. I mean, right after the main shooting. How uh, that, does that go? That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, if you're trying to win a race in a blue district after a mass shooting like that, I don't think that's something you say. Um, I can't imagine that's going to ingratiate him to, you know, the Barrington suburbanites, you yeah. know, who care about the gun control issue. Yeah, I mean, as we know, as you know, this district was um, padded 
<clears throat> with Democrats um, uh, in 2012. Ten years ago. Yeah. yeah, when they redistricted. So it leans Democratic. It's more liberal than CD2. Um, you know, Gabe almost come under fire, uh, literally, for not debating enough. There haven't been enough debates. You can argue that's true. Um, but uh, there were a lot, he had to push his, himself into the primary debates. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of primary debates and a lot of information about Gabamo in the primary campaign. So I'm not sure voters don't know enough but about I, these but candidates. I, I'll take issue with that because he says, people know where I stand. It's, it's August. He... He, he was talking to a smaller group. I mean, people know where I stand. People didn't know who you were five months ago. So I think he's a good candidate. I think probably he'll be a good congressman when he gets in there. But this whole deal that everybody knows my position. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I always like more debates rather than fewer. I agree with you. But Gary Leonard, uh, the thing about Gary Leonard is that um, the National Republican Party is too conservative for the state of Rhode Island. Mm. There are people who like Trump. There are people who would vote Republican for governor. But the party itself, its positions are too conservative. So if you're out there all the time, like this, no ban on any weapons, you get trapped in those statements. And I think that doesn't help his campaign in that district. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in the, the debate last night, Leonard did show that um, he is much more moderate than what we would see at the national level of uh, Republican candidates for Congress. Um, but, yeah, I think the, the big difference was the the gun issue um, and his opinion on guns and um, and I think that Gabe Amo did a nice job of of attaching Leonard to the Republican Party and what that would mean even if um, even if Leonard said he's you know he's bipartisan but the fact that he's going he would be a part of the the Republican majority in the House that is I think a concern for Democrats all right let's go to uh, outrage sorry to cut you off Emily let's go to outrageous Andrew kudos I was gonna say professor <coughs> professor number one here we'll start with you so um, laws are only as good as they are implemented well we saw in Maine the gaps in how gun uh, uh, bans or gun prohibitions for our people who are disturbed, mentally ill, you know, committed to uh, warnings, that is only as good as it is implemented. And it's a dangerous job for law enforcement to implement these gun removals and gun arrests. They are, it is dangerous. So we have to recognize that. But they, they dropped the ball in Maine. They needed to go further than they did in terms of law enforcement at the state police level, and they didn't do it. I feel more confident in Rhode Island than I do Maine. But let's remember that only as good as implemented when we think about passing new laws. Uh, Adam, what do you have? Uh, I was going to give a kudos to our former governor, Raimondo, who's gotten a lot of national attention this week. Uh, President Biden um, is about to unveil his executive order on artificial intelligence and apparently uh, now, Secretary of Commerce Raimondo is his point person on AI policy, and, and she's going to liaison with the business community on AI-related issues. It's clear that the president and, and his team really trust her, and she is raising our state's profile What nationally. do you see in her future, Professor Myers? <laughs> well, anything's po you know, it's so, it's so difficult to predict the landscape of national politics, you know, four, eight, 12 years from now, but she's definitely in the mix yeah. among potential presidential candidates. We'll see. Emily, what do you have? Um, I have a kudos for the Rhode Island Public Expenditure Council and um, the various uh, chambers of commerce across the state. Um, they are coming together to 
try to um, do their own part in improving public education in Rhode Island. Um, and this was covered by Dan McGowan in his roadmap um, this week. And I think this is um, a, a good thing as our poll is looking at education policy. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens, what the action plan is. Um, but the businesses see this is an important opportunity to get involved in public education here. Excellent. All right, I'm making an executive decision. With this panel, we can't not talk about national stuff going on in Washington. So stay tuned if you can. We're going to do what we haven't done this for a while. Our online bonus segment, Lively Extra, will give you an extra 10 minutes of analysis from some of the best in the state on what's going on in Washington. For the rest of you, if you can't watch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we are all over social media. We archive all of our shows at ripbs.org lively. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So take us along with you if you can't catch us during those times. Stay Stick with us for Lively Extra. For the rest of you, come back next week. We'll have the results of the CD1 race and whatever else is going on. We hope you have a great weekend and come back next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. And welcome back to our special bonus online edition. We call it Lively Extra when 30 minutes is just not enough. Welcome back, Adam and Emily and Professor Schiller. All of them are political science professors. We wanted to talk about what's going on in Congress. Wendy, this is your uh, bailiwick. Were you, so this was, was Mike Johnson the fourth or fifth? Were you surprised? He's pretty conservative, but. I was that's very, cons the, um, it reminded me of um, after Newt Gingrich in the 90s, um, the House Republicans chose Denny Hastert, who nobody had ever heard of, um, who was um, from a Midwestern state. And Tom DeLay was the majority leader and kind of ran things, but it was a mild-mannered, low-key speaker. So I don't know that this person is mild-mannered, but it basically says that the right wing of the Republican Party now dominates the House of Representatives, and you could say the Trump wing or the right wing, and there's been a battle between the, the factions. That battle's over, and the right wing has won, Problem is, will they be able to govern in any way? November 17th, keep that name, keep that date in mind. That is the blow-up date for shutting the government down. Again. It's a week before Thanksgiving, and people travel on Thanksgiving. TSA, air traffic controllers are part of that shutdown. So whether the Republican leadership can get their right-wing ranks to keep the government open is a very big question right now. Adam? Yeah, I mean, I basically agree with Wendy. You know, this guy, uh, newly elected Speaker Johnson, in terms of his political views, in terms of his views on policy, he's really no different from Jim Jordan, um, who <laughs> was a very controversial pick uh, from the Republican conference initially for speaker. The difference is really in style, right? He's 
as Wendy said, a more mild-mannered guy, less aggressive, less kind of no-holds-barred. He wears a suit coat. He wears a suit <laughs> coat. Um, but uh, the fact that he's more mild-mannered doesn't mean his job is going to be any easier. He's going to have tremendous difficulties keeping this very, very narrow and very fractious uh, majority in the House representatives together, and we're already seeing it, signs of that. Emily? I'm just curious to see what happens when Speaker Johnson has to make concessions and what will there be retaliation within the the right wing? Um, when do the they party? turn like, on him? Exactly, <laughs> well, exactly. And are we going to see turnover continue um, throughout this session? Well, the business, you know, the, the corporate business community does not like instability and uncertainty. And so if they shut the government down and Johnson's on that side, meaning we want big cuts and and Biden doesn't budge because Biden's not going to budge. Um, and the Senate already, you know, killed the first thing Johnson produces, which is a small aid bill, $14 billion to Israel, by cutting the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, um, among other things. Schumer said, that's a non-starter. We're done. The, the Senate Republicans are fighting with a very conservative Republican, Tommy Tuberville, who's up, holding up 300 military uh, promotions. So now the Republicans, you know, you, the business community has to decide, really December, January, who are they going to back in 24? Are they going to back challengers? Are they going to start to give money to Democrats? So if the Republicans show they cannot run the government, then I think the business community abandons the Republicans and they get much weaker going into 24. So that's going to be the looming thing. And then Trump takes over the party pretty much in the beginning to the end of January. And then I don't know what happens after that. Quick question. Uh, so Kevin McCarthy gave up all those concessions. You know, you could call one person, could call the thing Matt Gates. Did that go revert back or what What? What applies to Johnson? Yeah, in terms I've been of looking for that. I haven't, I haven't found I haven't found the sort of secret sauce on whether Johnson made said a deal he made or? a deal or um, I think I don't you know, think so. I think I think, I think it's still possible a, yeah. for any member to present a motion to vacate the speakership and according to the current rules if some if a because member Because you would that, have to vote to change it back or how does Yeah, that I mean the Republican the I mean it's it's really they have to change the rules. They're a majority party, so they'd have to vote again to say you can't just oust the speaker with one person's called oust the speaker. But you know, just because Matt Gates did that to McCarthy doesn't mean McCarthy should have lost. Right. He should have had the, the votes to stay. This is instability in our central government that runs almost a seven trillion dollar budget. So it's really important to recognize how vital it is that the majority party function in the House. Whether you like the Republicans or you don't, you want them to be functional. And I think the Democrats overplay their hand by, you know, being relishing the instability because sooner or later voters are going to say the government doesn't work at all and they're not going to tell the difference between the Republicans and And that's going to show up in your poll next time. <laughs> the gang of eight who kind of took McCarthy down, it's interesting to me that, you know, they don't really care. They're in their own districts like Tuberville. Oh, they love that he's doing this. But you got to wonder for the, for the elections are right around the corner. We'll be there a year from now. What that's going to mean for Congress if people see all this, Emily, at the, next year. I mean, yeah. are they just like the Republicans? Yeah, we can't handle them anymore. Exactly. I mean, we. this is just a Rhode Island poll, but it would be really interesting to see national polls on how um, constituents feel about these Republican um, reps and um, whether or not they feel like they are representing them or the country as a whole. Um, so that'll be that would be an interesting uh, question. Especially New York and California. Yeah. Uh, well, I would add a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I agree that this could potentially be very bad for Republicans in 2024, assuming 
the public ends up blaming them for instability in Washington, D.C. You know, it's possible that many voters are not so sophisticated that they can recognize that the instability is a, re is a result of what's going on among the Republican conference in the House. A lot of times when there's problems in Washington, D.C., voters immediately go to blame the president, right? So it's important to bear this in mind. We don't know who the voters are going to blame. And that's what Kevin McCarthy, remember he tried to say, this is Joe Biden's problem. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? It's your house. But that sinks in with some people, does it not? It absolutely does. Um, and so that's one thing to bear in mind. Another thing to bear in mind is, uh, going back to something Wendy said about Republicans worrying about losing the business community, you know, to some extent, that's already happened. You know, if you look at uh, uh, political contributions from the business community, Wall Street, and so forth, since 2016, there's been a major shift toward the Democrats. I mean, really? it's not it's not overwhelmingly tw uh, Democratic at this point. Um, but whereas previously business contributions substantially favored yes. Republicans, now it's almost 50-50. Because the business community is seeing this kind of new, quote unquote, populist Republican Party, and they're not liking what they're seeing. Yeah. It used to be exactly to Adam's point. About 70%, if you went back, you know, 15 years, 70% of corporate or business contributions went to Republicans, 30% went to Democrats who are incumbents. Um, so, and the Senate, it's, you know, this is their, you know, their, their Senate Republican, McConnell in particular, is so anxious to keep the House stuff away from the Senate because there are 20 Democratic seats open uh, for contestation, only 10 Republican seats going into 24. Republicans have a fantastic opportunity to get control of the Senate back, but the House shenanigans will hurt the Senate candidates running, uh, in particular key swing states. And pay attention to swing states where there are Senate races also. That's going to affect turnout. Final thought? Uh, well, I also think we should be um, considering the messaging of uh, the Republican Party and the Speaker in, in really pushing, like when we're looking at these bills, it's fiscal responsibility. So that must be resonating with some of these groups of Republicans that even if it may shy, some of the, the businesses may shy away from it, there must be other organizations, um, groups that are in support of this. Okay, even with Lively Extra, we never have enough time. But thank you for joining us for this special online bonus edition. Uh, Adam and Emily and Wendy, let's do this again. Let's get the professors again, maybe in the new year. Folks, come back next week as the Lively Experiment continues.